Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Hello, dress listeners. So for the past five seasons and almost five years, April and I have been bringing you a wide range of stories exploring and celebrating the significance of clothing from throughout history and around the world. We are currently on hiatus, researching a way for a brand new season of Dressed. Season six will launch on January 17th, 2023. And until then, we want to share with you some of our favorite Dressed classic episodes from the archive of almost 400 past episodes. Enjoy! Our guest today, the amazing Dana Thomas, joins us in the studio in New York, where she was visiting from Paris, where she lives. And Dana is a renowned fashion journalist who has worked as a correspondent to Newsweek in Paris, as well as being a regular contributor to the various New York Times publications, because you know there are many out there, Um, but also the Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Harbor's Bazaar, Vogue, I mean, the list just goes on. And she's also written three books, which we're going to speak about here in a bit. Yes, Dana's substantial contributions to the field of fashion journalism were even recognized by the French Minister of Culture back in 2016 when she was made a Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters. What an honor. And we are so thrilled she's able to join us. Welcome, Dana. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I, I've been a big fan of your books for many years now um, from Deluxe, which is a really captivating social history of the luxury industry, to Gods and Kings, which actually Cass and I have already talked about on the show because we did a mini-sode about our favorite fashion history books, and oh. that was on both of our lists. Neither one of us had told each other what was going to be on the list before we did it. Fantastic. Um, so you and, both like Alexander McQueen and John Galliano. Yes. Absolutely. So it is a biography, basically, of their parallel career trajectories, right? Exactly. Um, but uh, now and competitions. Yes, exactly. Rivalry. Rivalry. And now we have your latest book, which is called Fashionopolis: The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. And I was so excited that you had a new book out. I basically read this whole thing in under a day, and it I didn't have- take me that long to write it. <laughs> Um, I I have to say this is a very important book. And 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 I think that any of our listeners who go out, pick it up and read it are going to come away stunned with the information that's in this. Like basically if you wear clothes, you need to read this book. That's the idea. Yeah. That's why I wrote it. So you note um in the introduction that consumers quote, I'm quoting you snap up five times more clothing now than they did in 1980. And that in 2018, that averaged 68 garments a year. Yeah. Average. Yeah, average. So obviously, like, there, a lot of people are consuming a lot more than that. My question is going to be really broad. What 
happened? What the hell happened in the last 40 years? Like, why are we finding ourselves in this place? Well, it's it's because business marketing and capitalism has created our addiction to clothes and made and facilitated our buying. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think about a house that was built before the war, how big was the closet? Mm-hmm. I mean, you live in an old apartment or old house. Your closet is what? Three feet wide? Yeah. Well, today we have walk-in closets. Or even some people have rooms. Or rooms. And with walls dedicated just to shoes. We didn't buy clothes like that before. You bought one good dress each season. And the next season you bought a new coat that went with that dress. I remember Mr. Valentino telling me about how his collections, he designed his collections so that they would talk to each other and compliment Mm. each other. That he had a, a running theme going. So you could buy a coat in 2005 that went over a dress that you bought in 1995, and they looked wonderful together because they were related. In the early 90s, Mucha Prada changed that up when she started doing these collections that were each season radically different than the one she'd done before, the most famous one being the one that looked like McDonald's colors mm-hmm. for uniforms, and, and everyone called it ugly fashion. And it was so different from what she'd done before, which was very, very sort of Audrey Hepburnish or, you know, Belle de Jour, like just 180-degree flip. And the idea is that whatever you bought last season is over, and you need to come shopping this season and buy the new look that's completely on. Now, we've long had pink is the new black or whatever those ideas are, but they weren't quite so radical from season to season. There was a progression. It grew. You know, the mini skirt didn't come in one season and then disappear to the maxi skirt the next season. There was a decade before we got to the maxi skirt. So these two things happened. Mucha Prada leading this charge of by this season, okay, it's over, replace it next season, thus bumping up and growing sales, which is good business. And the arrival of fast fashion. Mm-hmm. And fast fashion, the H&M's top shop's Benetton's, Gap's, they'd been around for a while. But what changed, they'd always been a middle market brands that made us decent, fun clothes for not a lot of money, but a fair amount of money. I remember when I was shopping at Gap in the 80s, you know, you paid sort of $25 or $30 for a dress. And you and I, I have a couple of t-shirts, I still have them that were really great cotton, really well made. And they probably cost me $25 or $30. You know, you paid a, a fair amount for them, but they were good clothes. And they were well-made, and they were probably made offshore, but not necessarily. And then what happened was that the fast fashion brands adopted a system that the American apparel industry put in place to combat imports. Mm -hmm. And it's called QR, quick response. And this, this was created in conjunction with Kurt Salman, the consultancy for the apparel industry, because they were getting wigged out that at the time, the Hong Kong was the was the offshore center. And so imports were coming in from Hong Kong. Mostly it was things like underwear and T-shirts. But there was Liz Claiborne sourcing in Hong Kong, and she was having all her things there. And they were getting really nervous about this. So quick response was that, you know, a a collection is conceived, say, in January, sourced, you know, presented in September for the clothes that would be sold the following March. And the retailers are guessing you know, now they're doing their buying even in June and July before the show. They're guessing what everyone's going to want a year from now or a year and a half from now. Right. And then, they're, and then they have to push those clothes onto consumers when they hit the stores. Quick response was saying, you know what, let's not, and they were 
produced in large amounts, the economies of scale. And then if there were leftovers, they were put on sale, and then they were put on sale and sale, and then they were put in outlets, and then they were destroyed. So we had excess closing. Quick response was, let's do that whole system, except that you order, say, 10 instead of 100 of that look Mm -hmm. for your department store chain across the country. And if it sells, we can put it back in production and get you more really quickly and get them on the floor you know, within a week or two weeks. So it was like test marketing, basically. So it was like test marketing. It was it was drops, but it wasn't drops where they were all the time. It was based on that long-term cycle, but you weren't losing your shirt by overproducing. Mm-hmm. Right. Literally. And fast fashion took that idea of quick response and adapted it where those quick response to things selling could change with the fashion really quickly. So instead of January conception of a collection, sales in the summer, show in September, more sales in the fall for delivery for, you know, the spring, the following year, they would see something in January, make it January, and then get it on, get it in the store in January, February. It could take, you know, four to six weeks from idea to the floor. And they were doing these drops every two weeks. Now, the idea is that the more you're changing the clothes on the on the shop floor, the more customers want to come in. And Zara Star was the one who adapted the QR to the middle market fashion range. Zara saw the the uptick immediately before he started doing this. Uh, shoppers went four to five times a year into stores. When he started QR and putting in drops every two weeks, it became seventeen times a year. What? Four times more than than previously. And if you just bought one thing each of those times, sales went up four times. Mm-hmm. And they just realized this was gold. Right. And it was really easy. And so how is that how has it changed how things are done? Well, I was at a show, as I write it in the book, America Transu show, and she showed these beautiful prints in September. And as we walked out, a major retailer, online retailer told me, I bet Topshop's already working on that butterfly print. And it's absolutely true. What happens now is that everyone Instagrams what they see on the shows. Mm-hmm. You know, in the old days, you had somebody like Hamish Bull sitting next to you sketching what he saw, and then it would get photographed and put in vogue in six months. And they were on that same cycle as the retailers. Now you just snap it and you post it. And then they see how many likes each item has, and it's an instant market mm-hmm. study. And they say, boom, let's start working on that. Let's put it in production. Let's put it in the store before Mary Katrans, who's even had for sales. Yeah. And it's completely changed the cycle of fashion and how we consume it. So if we were we go into the stores, I mean it's probably more than 17 times a year now. I walked past a Primark in London a few weeks ago and I saw on on Oxford Street, I saw these grocery carts, you know those low ones that you drag around like a suitcase? Yeah. yeah, yeah. At the front door. And I thought, right, that explains everything. They want you to buy so much in that store that you need to just dump Luggage. it into a grocery cart. And also, it explains how we appreciate clothes. The clothes today are cheaper than they have ever are. I kept hearing this when I was working on the book. And it's true. When I started thinking back to what I was paying in the 80s at Gap, when I was a Gap customer in my 20s, I was probably paying a bit more than you would today, or at least the same. Mm -hmm. The quality was better. I was getting more for my money. But how can that be that I'm paying the same amount in the 1980s for clothes as I am today? when I'm making so much more money and everything else costs so much more. Right. So it's true that clothes never cost so little, and therefore we buy them en masse, and we dump them into these carts that we're dragging around the store. So already we don't have the 
respect for the garment. We're throwing it in this filthy plastic thing, just like piled in, Mm -hmm. and we're buying them en masse. We're burning through them en masse, and we're getting rid of them at lightning speed. The average garment today is worn seven times before it's tossed, and I was told in China it's three times. Now, given how much I wear my clothes, you know, I have jackets that I wear till they're threadbare. I still have those T-shirts from the Gap in the 1980s. (laughs) And my husband goes, they're a little tired now. I said, yeah, okay, I'll wear them only in the country. I mainly wear vintage now, or um, I will buy from fashion designers that I know personally. Exactly. Well, if I'm wearing mine to that degree, then uh, there are a lot of people who are throwing things away that they've never worn. Yeah. And those clothes that arrive with tags in Africa where, you know, we shunt our clothes because we, we can't, our landfills are heaving with them. They call those clothes dead people clothes because they think, how can anybody who's alive be throwing away perfectly good clothes that still have the tags on them? You just you just actually introduced us into my next question. Great. <laughs> Which was, where are all these clothes going? Because, like, we talked about, like, closet space is finite for most people. Yeah. And if you are bringing in, as you say in the book, 68 new garments a year on average. On average. You have to get rid of some things. You got to go through it. You so gotta, where where is all that going? Well, it goes to charity. And charity will use it for charity on occasion for homeless people. If there's a disaster, you know, hurricane wipes out Puerto Rico or Haiti or, you know, clothes get sent. Though Haiti now says, please stop sending us your clothes. We have too many here now, too. And they have their own indigenous Fashion, fashion, fashion trades and fashion trades, it's business significantly damaging exactly. textile traditions in exactly. countries abroad when we are exporting all of our unwanted clothes. And then a lot go to Africa. And we think, oh, the Africans need our clothes. Well, they really don't. They had their own dressmakers and tailors and weavers and printers and beautiful fabrics and and you know, dyers and and cotton growers and all of it. They have their own industry. And it's, you know, craft-driven, which is even more beautiful with needlework. And that's getting thrown to the wayside as people are walking around in, you know, NFL t-shirts and Mickey Mouse t-shirts and, you know, everything else that we we give away and Zara and coach handbags to the point that a group of African countries in Central Africa band together and said, stop, we don't want this anymore. We want to protect our own industry. And they passed this regulation, and the Trump administration was so angered by this that they launched a trade war against these countries. And all the countries capitulated because they needed the help from, you know, they needed USI aid and and not have to pay higher tariffs for things, a few things they do export. And the only one who held firm was Rwanda. But they're having a hard time. But they said, no, we got to We got to support our, our, our people. Yeah. not just keep wearing, you know, the leftovers of wealthy Westerners. So part of all of this really comes down to the point of mass production. Overproduction. And scale. Volume. Yeah. So uh, this is, of course, possible by way of technology. And this is something that you speak about quite a bit in your book. Mm-hmm. And, and you wrote that our technology has evolved, but our ethos has not. Right. So I'm hoping you might expound on that. Well, of course, the whole idea of more is better, mm-hmm. and also that idea of economies of scale that we talk about. I, I interview, I talk to um, Maria Cornejo, yes, uh, who's wonderful here in downtown New York, and she calls this you know, the false economy, 
because there are people who are getting ripped off all along the supply chain, which is true. And thus why only 2% of apparel makers earn a living wage, workers, mm-hmm. and 98% don't. And only 2% of our clothes are produced domestically. So there's your answer of who's getting paid a proper wage and who's not. But she also said, look, you know, they would send me to Hong Kong to nickel and dime these businesses to give us more for our money. And, to you know, when we only needed eight, we'd produce 10 so we could get more out of the fabric. And, you know, then we'll chuck those two. 20% of all clothes produced are not sold. They're just flat out destroyed. She said, and then they would fly me business class and they put me up at a five-star hotel. And this is before she owned her own business. And this was before yeah. she owned her own business at, I, I can't remember which brand she was. And she said, that's the false economy, that they're spending all this money to send me to Hong Kong to nickel and dime these companies. So, And then we overproduce in order to chuck a bunch of it away because we're saving money because we'll make bigger profits. That, in fact, the math, as George Herbert Walker Bush called it, uh, fuzzy math. <laughs> it's fuzzy math, right? So it doesn't really add up if you start taking in, you know, what it's costing the country of Bangladesh in different ways or what it's costing you know, social security in different ways. You know, like we're paying for the cuts in other ways mm-hmm. and we're overproducing. But this is the core, this is the basis of what the apparel industry and actually all manufacturing has been since Richard Arkwright launched the first water frame 250 years ago in Manchester, England. This is the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. This is how the business model has worked for two and a half centuries, that you overproduce, you produce en masse, you're selling volume, you're moving product, and whatever we don't use, we chuck. And we need to rethink that. That it, It's become clear that that model is not sustainable. We've been sustaining it for two and a half centuries, but boom, we've hit a wall. Yeah, And it's, you know, accelerated with globalization and this period that we've had of the last 30 years of just downright unbridled capitalism. Like, they're, when everyone moved offshore for their production, and this is in fashion, but this isn't everything. This is in sneakers. This is in widgets. This is in iPhones. This is in everything. Christmas ornaments. We lost oversight on how our things are made, how our clothes are made, how everything is made. You ask a company today, where is your stuff made? They're like, well, you know, we kind of know. Here and here. We know, but then it gets subcontract. They lose yeah. track. And what we see is that when there are moments like Rana Plaza, when that factory collapsed in Bangladesh, killing more than 1,000 people, they found labels in the rubble and went to those companies and said, you produce there. And they said, we had no idea we were producing there. Well, if you had no idea you were producing there, you have a problem. Right. How can you not know where your things are made and how do you not keep track of it? We've lost oversight. And therefore, there are wild abuses. And that's how businesses save money. That's how they make their profits. That's how shareholders make all their money. My husband says that my book is a little bit Marxist. And I think, well, yeah, you know, maybe we need a dash of Marxism. Well, I'm actually later, hopefully, going to throw a quote from Marx back to you that you say in the book. But we might need a little bit after 30 years. That's why we have income inequality. That's why we have this wealth disparity. This is why we have so, you know, Homelessness is on the rise while we've never had so many billionaires. It's all because of this system. Yeah, and 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 I think um, there are moments in your book that are literally heartbreaking. And I admit to getting teary-eyed more than once when I was reading it. And well, thank you. Yeah, because I did my my job well. Yeah, and and a lot of this comes back to exactly what you were just saying. It's about labor. So I'm gonna I'm gonna and the planet. 
Yeah. When and people ask me, what's this book about? I say in two words, it's about humanity and the planet. And they mm-hmm. go, what? Mm-hmm. But in fact, it is. That's And that's why I'm saying <laughs> that if you wear clothes, you need to read this book. <laughs> because you, you, are, buy anything. you are implicit. You're implicit and system. you don't realize it. Right. Um, I'm going to move that quote from Marx up and because you said, you quoted him and you said, without slavery, there would be no cotton. And without cotton, there would be no modern industry. That's right. So, unfortunately, this this issue is very much alive and well today. We don't call it slavery anymore. We just call it low-cost labor. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is slavery. You and, have indentured workers. You have workers who aren't paid. I saw sweatshops in L.A. where, you know, workers are paid $2 a day in California. How and, is that even? That's not legal. It's not legal. But you hear it. You can see it. You can walk down these hallways and see them. It's right there in two blocks from, you know, Disney Hall and around the corner from Our Lady of Angels. It's right there. You walk down the street, you'll hear the sewing machines. And they're undocumented workers, Mm -hmm. desperate for work. They have talent. They have a skill, a skill that we don't value anymore. Thus, why we can pay them $2 an hour to do it in a state where the the minimum wage is between ten and fifteen dollars. I'm not sure where it is now because they're working their way up to fifteen dollars. Mm-hmm. We're fifteen here in New York now. Two dollars yeah. an hour, and they aren't paid overtime. And when the month they get paid at the end of the month, and some you know say on paper they were supposed to earn eight hundred dollars this month, the boss might just give them four hundred because that's what he feels like doing, and they have no recourse. Oh. They have no recourse. <laughs> makes me really and they're angry making clothes right now. <laughs> and they make clothes for brands like. Forever 21, which has just gone bankrupt, who say, you know, made in the USA. So we buy it thinking, oh, this is great. It's made in the USA. So we know but that they buy who? Where we buy things doesn't matter. How, what, where, the where part makes no matter. It's what we need. We need to ask how our clothes are made. So they get away with the made in the USA, which to us is, as a consumer, we say, cool. Well, we know that they had to follow all of our US rules and they didn't. Our laws, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. So they're they're essentially slaves again. Yeah. Yes, they live in their own homes, but then in the US, but then in Asia or elsewhere they don't. I visited factories where they have dorms on campus. And mm-hmm. in some of those places they lock the workers inside. Yeah. And they I'm, don't let them out on the weekends. They don't let them out except to go into the factory and work, and then they lock them back in the dorms. And, and when I was in Vietnam, I have seen people sleeping on the floor of the shop, of the ta- quote-unquote tailor shop. Sleeping where on the floor, kids if, sleeping under the tables as their you, mothers are working. Right. If you um, are a tourist in this town for only like two or three days, they will take your order create your made-to-measure garment, but what's happening is that there are people working on that to produce 24 hours a day. 24-7. And then you see people sleeping on the floor. And sleeping it's just on like, the floor. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 We And, you know, I visited sweatshops in Bangladesh where people are super thin. They're kids that are 13, 14 years old. They're all working barefoot on rough-hewn floors. The windows were broken. It's 100 degrees temperature. There's slop on the walls. The one staircase house is encumbered with boxes so they couldn't get out if they wanted to. And they were making jeans for, you know, a pretty well-known brand in Russia. And they're they're not being paid the minimum wage of $68 a month, which is already half a minimum, half the living wage. They're paid a fraction of that. So it's still the same. Without the slavery, we wouldn't have our industry Mm -hmm. to the degree we have it. Right. And 
I think it's important to acknowledge all of these really deeply disturbing and bleak aspects of the fashion industry. But at the same time, I also want to say that all is not lost. No, we call this the Book of Hope. Yes. And we're going to take a super short sponsor break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about, hopefully, some of the visionaries who are forging fashion's new path. Yes. Welcome back. Dana, I'm hoping that we can shine a light on some of the great work that's actually been done to solve some of these problems that we've been talking about, specifically in terms of labor and sustainability that are inherent to the current fashion system. And your book highlights more than a few makers who are entirely rethinking the system. Could you tell us about a few and why what they're doing is so significant? Well, yes. My favorite moment in this book completely unexpected was when I went to Nashville because I knew that Nashville is the third largest garment center in America. Which I think it will be surprising to a lot of people. It surely is. After L.A., which is number one, and New York, which is number two. But if you stop and think about it, there's the whole costume industry for the country western music scene. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of manufacturing because of government contracts, uniforms, things like that, because all of that has to be made in America. And they have water in Tennessee, and you need water to make clothes. The apparel industry uses vast amounts of water. So I went to Nashville, and my friend Libby Calloway, who's a fashion consultant there, said, you must go see Sarah Bellows. She has a company called Stony Creek Colors, and she dyes indigo, indigo and natural colors. So I I got in the car, and I drove outside of the town to Goodlettsville, And met Sarah, this lovely woman in her 30s, beautiful girl. She opened the door. She was standing there in in her socks with the muddy boots next to the door because she'd been out in the fields walking the indigo fields that morning. She's wearing a pair of jeans that were absolutely iridescent, this blue. You know when you look at the sky and you try to take a picture of a sunset and it just doesn't quite capture what you saw, Mm -hmm. the colors of nature? Mm-hmm. that rose, the Mediterranean blue. Well, that's how this blue was wow. of her jeans. It's a natural indigo, and it's a natural color that we just can't reproduce synthetically. And when I saw it, I got it, why natural indigo is so superior. And she has decided to single-handedly kickstart, restart the indigo business, natural indigo on an industrial level. We've used indigo since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians were using indigo. But a hundred years ago, a German chemist at BASF, as was, you know, happening all over the place in the late 19th century, came up with this synthetic version of indigo, which everyone thought was brilliant. Just like the idea that when we came up with polyester before the war, and it was a perfect stand-in for silk, and when we didn't have any silk because it went to the war effort for uniforms and parachutes and thread for hospitals. Well. Natural indigo seemed like a genius idea in the late 19th century because you could have, it would be stable. You'd have it all the time. Color and it would always, fast the color, color fast. And you'd have it 12 months a year. You mm-hmm. wouldn't have seasons. And if there was a big storm, your crop wouldn't get wiped out. You could just keep making it in a lab. But it was a bit dull compared to this natural indigo. And what we have since learned is it's highly toxic. It contains chemicals like cyanide. I like to joke now 
that, you know, in those old spy movies when they would have like a cyanide pill in their ring and you get caught. But it's just in your genes. And you, you'd have to take the pill, you know, to commit suicide in the prison to escape being, making them torture you. Well, you could just eat your genes. Yeah. Right? So she's decided, let's go back to natural indigo. And it turns out that indigo is one of the few crops that re-nourishes soil, like soybeans. And tobacco, which is what Kentucky and Tennessee were all growing in this, you know, in her region for years and years and years and years, is one of the greatest leachers of nutrients. Oh, so it just makes perfect so, sense in a, a circular loop. That circular loop. And the tobacco industry has moved offshore, like so much else. So farmers were looking for something to grow, and they couldn't just grow anything because the soil had become so poor after centuries of farming tobacco. So they're planting this indigo and nourishing the soil. And they're getting paid, while they are paid less in the short term, in the long term, they actually make more money. And that's what all of this is about. When we talk about slow fashion and we talk about the environment, our capitalist business system is built on the short term. Right. Quarterly results. Yes. How much money are we going to make tomorrow, today? But in the long term, we lose money and we have because we've impacted the planet in a way that it can't keep giving back to us. And the slow fashion and the slow manufacturing movement says, no, let's think about this in a long game. Mm-hmm. How much money will we be making in 10 years if we kill our fields? Right. So they're going back to this idea of renourishing the soils. It's all going to come down to, in the end, like someone's going to write a book about soil because if we don't take care of our soil, we're in big trouble. It's all about soil. And that's what they're doing with the indigo. And she makes this beautiful dye, and her first client was cone, the wonderful cone denim, white oak for their salvage jeans. Mm-hmm. And there's an entire cult around. There surely is. Denim like, heads. Very. Like, you think sneaker culture is intense. Denim culture denim is cultures. equally intense. It's great. It's so <laughs> cool. And I got deep into that. I go deep into the whole denim denim head culture in the book in the U.S. and in Japan. Mm-hmm. Especially Japan. And especially in Japan. And, and the history of blue jeans, which are the most sustainable, were invented as the most sustainable garment of all time. But that's not now, though. That's very different. Not now, and I explain how that <laughs> happens, too. So she she landed Cone. Now, sadly, that beautiful factory was closed about a year after she landed that contract. Our Secretary of Commerce owned that company, sold it, and then those people who bought it um, decided to close it and move everything offshore. But she's working with Patagonia. She's working with some other folks. She was work- wearing just Gustin jeans, I think is how you pronounce it, G-U-S-T-I-N, out of... San Francisco when I saw her with her made with her indigo. And when I met her, she said, I hope I can command 1% of the industry. And when I called her back two years later to double check and get updates on what everything, she said, I'm it's looking like I might get 3% of the industry. And the beauty of that is if she gets 3% of the industry, she also might inspire others mm-hmm. to do the same. And then suddenly it'll be 10%. And then 20%. And wouldn't it be great if at one point we had half and half? And that's what I say about, you know, we'll never get rid of fast fashion, just like we're never going to get rid of fast food. Mm -hmm. But 20 years ago, fast food was, you know, super industrial, and now McDonald's sells salad. And farm-to-table was hard to find, and now it's everywhere. And I lived in Washington, D.C. 30 years ago. There wasn't a farmer's market 
And now there's one two blocks from my old apartment. And you have Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. So you get choice. Right. And I feel like we're going to get to the same place in fashion that we have in the food industry, where we will have the equivalent of Whole Foods for fashion. And we will have more farm to table. We will have more farm to, as we call it, uh, field to frock. Right. Well, and I think that's why your book is so important is because most people simply do not know this. No. I didn't know it, and I've been covering the industry for 30 years. Yeah, and, and, and if you read this book and you lay it out so succinctly and so lovely, and, you know, it is, some of the stuff is hard to read, but ultimately you walk away from this and you're like, I had no idea. I had no idea. So another one of these makers who's just so genius, who I went down to see, drove down to see just after I saw Sarah Bellows in Nashville, I drove to Florence, Alabama, to Muscle Shoals, music capital of the South. And it was a eye-opening drive on top of it because I drove through areas that had been ravaged by offshoring and saw empty factories and ghost towns where, you know, stores that had been flourishing 30 years ago were boarded up. You know, pre I saw the, the post-NAFTA disaster of the South as I drove to Florence, Alabama. I got it. And I went to see Natalie Channon, and she's been in the business in the fashion business for about 30 years. And she did all the things you're supposed to do. She came to 7th Avenue and worked for a big company. She went overseas and worked for a couple of fashion companies. She came back to New York and decided to start her own thing. And then she eventually moved it to Alabama. And her thing is direct-to-consumer, made-to-order, organic cotton clothes, as much of it sourced in America as possible, all made within a 90-minute drive of her headquarters, zero waste in a small town. And she proves that you can make great fashion anywhere. And you can actually make a good living if you don't try to do it in New York or LA, super expensive places. And she says, you know, zero debt. She has zero debt. She doesn't owe any money to any banks. She started from scratch. She built it up. And she is not, in, and it's working. It's working really well. She lives a good and comfortable life in a nice town where she grew up. She knows all the folks. She had a wonderful dinner when I was there in August. That's where we launched the book. And my dinner partner and, and was John Paul White, the singer from the formerly of the Civil Wars. And then he got his guitar and started playing for us. You know, it's a good small town life. Right. There are the beauty and, ben and benefits of small town living, including running a decent business that can be a global business, but not having to spend a fortune in overhead to do it. So... What I found with all these interesting makers and startups that I profile in the book, and it was just by happenstance, I did not set out. But, you know, if you think about the two I've just talked about, the change makers are women. Yeah. And they're, they're some <laughs> of them. I did not miss out on that. And some of them are the in their book. 30s and some of them are in their 50s. And I think, you know, they got a bump and a boost by Hillary Clinton. Yes, Hillary Clinton lost. She didn't break the glass ceiling. But what they realized by her not breaking the glass ceiling is that we don't need to break the glass ceiling, that we can just step over here to the side and start something new on our own and do it the way we want to do it and not try to, to do it in the system that's existed for 250 years, which was invented by men, run by men, maintained by men, and men who profit. Hell 
to the yeah to that and that's why dressed exists honestly partially like you know we didn't ever start out to like make a feminist podcast no but it's just part of like who Cass and I are and it evolved to be that that's what's happened yeah And the beauty is that there are a few tech entrepreneurs, tech billionaires who are women too, that they're a couple women who made a killing or they've inherited a killing because somebody in the family made a killing and they're investing in women. So these women will go to, you know, if you're a startup like Stacey Flynn at Evernew in Seattle. Will you tell us a little bit more about what Evernew does after you're done with this? Stacey Flynn from Evernew. She had this idea of taking old cotton t-shirts breaking them down to their fibers, not even beyond fibers, like atoms, like, you know, back to their, their core, molecular, their mo- molecular core, their molecular, and regenerating it mm-hmm. into virgin cotton. And it can be done over and over and over again. This is the, this is the secret of circular economy, that mm-hmm. we take that T-shirt, instead of sending it to Africa, or instead of sending it to the landfill, that we send it to a a place where it will get broken down to its molecular level, regenerated, and turned into something else. It could be turned into sheets, flags, T-shirts, any kind of fabric, Mm -hmm. cotton, cotton, cotton. And when she had this idea and the science behind it, she went to pitch to different folks to raise money, and they all said she was crazy. And in fact, most of these entrepreneurs, when they pitched to the status quo financiers, you know, the regular financiers we've had forever, the, the the ones you'd go to, the angels, but old school. They all say to these women, you're crazy. But a lot of the women who were angels said, all right, I get it. I'll give you money. The same with, again, with Warren again. You know, they went to speak to Miroslava Duma and she was like, yeah, I get what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Warren again is the same idea as uh, ever knew, except it takes cotton poly blends separates them and then regenerates the polyester and regenerates the cotton. Because that's part of the problem. That was one of the biggest problems is, of all. Is that a lot of times when threads are um, spun from two different types of fibers, it's uh, it precludes certain types of upcycling or recycling. Absolutely. Right? Most of those clothes wind, wind up in the landfill because nobody can figure out how to separate them. Right. And 60% of our clothes contain polyester. So that's a big problem. And they figured out how to solve it with the help of a Cambridge scientist. I explain all this in the book, the, the science behind it, but also the go get them entrepreneurism that drove these women to do this. Yeah, and and honestly, like, we've talked about this before on Dressed um, with some other guests, but I really do believe that the next industrial revolution is going to be based in this economy of upcycling. And circularity. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all about circularity, keeping things in, in the cycle. And so the definition of circularity, quite simply, and I didn't come up with this. This is, you know, like cradle to cradle wrote yeah. this book 10 years ago. Um, or that book was published 10 years ago, Bill McDonough and his partner. They have their, cir- you know, cradle to cradle foundations and awards and good seals of approval. So this is a thing that's been around. But circularity is basically... Since Arkwright invented that water frame and we started manufacturing, we would have the birth of a product, the use of a product, and then the death of a product. And what we want to do is have the birth of a product, the use of a product, 
the rebirth of the product, the use of the product, the rebirth of the product. Now, we have that in some ways, like if you take, and before the Industrial Revolution, you know, you think about, for me, one of the great examples of this, in Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara needs a new dress. She (laughs) goes and takes down the curtains, (laughs) makes it into a dress. That's circularity. (laughs) You know, that your cotton shirt, your organic cotton T-shirt is so worn out that you throw it in the compost and then the worms get at it and you put it on your rose bushes. That's circularity. You know, you're using it to absolutely, it's not going in a landfill, that it's going, and landfills, we think, oh, but that'll break down. Well, you know, plastic doesn't break down. That means polyester doesn't break down. It's going to be sitting in there forever moldering. Mm -hmm. So, no, what we need to do is think about how we're going to take that product and reuse it in some clever way. It could be upcycling, where you take your jeans and you turn them into a handbag or or a skirt or cutoffs yourself. Or, you know, you take your old flannel pajamas and cut them up into rags to polish the silver. You don't just throw them in the trash. And circularity on a, on a business level is companies like Ever New and Worn Again. And this is the future of fashion. Mm-hmm. This is why the subtitle of the book is And the Future of Fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And many of the makers that we just talked about just now are advocates for slow fashion. But there's also this very fascinating part of your book, where you talk about innovators that are promoting technology Technology. as the future of sustainable fashion. And one of my very favorite parts, actually, is the part where you talk about the intersection of robotics in the garment industry, because I didn't know anything about this. And ultimately— Sobots. Yeah, it's Sobots, S-E-W-B-O-T-S, which is fabulous. I think ultimately you come away with the thought that maybe that's a double-edged sword. So I'm hoping hoping you can talk about that. And and also just a little bit about like, where are we with things like robotics in the garment industry and also 3D printing, which is amazing. And you went and visited Iris Van Van Herpen's studio. Um, I'm a huge fan of her. She's wonderful. (laughs) But, but like, where are we within that, like, kind of, like, tech trajectory, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, SoBots are already making our clothes. There's a a wonderful man in Atlanta who came up with the SoBot title for what they're doing, and I think he's trademarked it. And he has a factory in Arkansas that's making bath mats. They're going to make T-shirts. Now, there are a lot of people who say, oh, but that's getting rid of jobs. It is and it isn't. I mean, it's the same argument as when the sewing machine came exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> and the creation of, you know, and the and the water frame, you know, was going to take away the, the jobs of weavers. It's creating different jobs mm-hmm. is what's happening. And yes, there'll be fewer jobs, but the jobs that are there will be better jobs. You're not going to be just running up zippers all day long mm-hmm. and getting repetitive motion issues and and doing mindless, mindless, mindless work for for pennies, you know, the av- if a garment costs $20, that means the person who made it was probably paid 20 cents. If you're running a machine that's a robotic machine, then you have a more valuable skill. You're getting paid a lot more than 20 cents for that job, which mm-hmm. is great. You're getting a living wage. So there are all sorts of cool robots. Like one of my favorites is Genealogia in the denim section of the book. I write about this company in Valencia, Spain. And they came up with a system for distressing genes that uses lasers 
as opposed to hand sanding them. Hand sanding them. I saw it in Vietnam. I have films on my phone that I'll some at some point post of people hand sanding them. They're not wearing masks. They're inhaling all the denim and dust and all the cotton filaments. It's 100 degrees. Their fans blowing everything around. It's, it was just awful. And they're paid pennies. Meanwhile, you have these lasers. You know, like when the dentist puts the lead on your chest yeah. and then the x-ray and goes in the other room to take yeah. the picture? Yeah. Well, it's like that, <laughs> except that it's jeans in a box. And, and then he goes in the, they go in the other little, behind the booth, and they run the, the lasers and the lasers distress the jeans and they come out and they take the jeans out and they put new jeans on. It's very cool. Now, when I was a teenager and a youth, we bought jeans shrink to fit and we broke them in ourselves and it took like six months. It was a lot of work, but then the jeans were kind of perfect. Now we, distre- we want our jeans already distressed. And so if we're going to have them distressed, let's not pay people pennies. You know, that slavery line from Marx. Let's yep. not have slaves sanding them for us because we're too busy to break them in ourselves. Let's have some nice people who are well-trained to run computers do it from a clean room with lasers. And it's all clean and the dust is vacuumed up and nothing's running off into rivers and killing the ri- The whole system is cleaner. Yeah. So the same with Sobots. The same with 3D printing. Now, there is talk. I kept hearing this, and I'm intrigued by this notion. It feels very Jetson-y to me, that in in the future, we won't be buying things on Amazon. We're going to buy a pattern and print it ourselves. We're going to get, we won't get sent anything in a box. That whole box and delivery thing's going to go away. That they're going to send us a link, and we're going to print it out in our kitchen. Now, I I wonder how this is really going to work, but I am told this is the future. We'll see. And again, that will change jobs. So we won't have people driving, you know, FedEx trucks around delivering packages all the time. We'll have, you know, stuff in our house. But everything changes. We don't have the Pony Express anymore either, you know. Right. No, but but I think that's it's We're so always fascinating. Evolving. And also, like, one, it speaks to, obviously, sustainability. It's but, cleaner. But also, it's it safer. speaks to the problem of sizing. It does. And one off. Like there's these these two, these three kids in, and I call them kids because they're under 30. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, or, or at least when I saw them, they were. And they're in London and they have a company called Unmade. And they've come up with a computer program, robotic basically, that fits onto knitting machines up in the knitwear district in Scotland, which had been having a hard time keeping going, where you just make a red sweater, and then you make, you know, a red V-neck, a purple turtleneck, a green crew neck, that you don't have to do that economies of scale run of 100 red V-necks in order to get the 80 that you want, you throw 20 away. That idea that we produce 100 billion garments a year, but we only sell 80 billion, which is kind of crazy. It's definitely crazy. (laughs) Uh, Instead, we can build made to order, just like Alabama Channon, but on an industrial level. So they came up with this program, robotics, to attach to these machines. And so each sweater can come out exactly what the customer wants. And it's shipped directly from the factory to the consumer. So you order it on Monday and you get it by Friday. But you know what you want and you're getting exactly what you want. You liked that red sweater, but, you know, you look terrible in crew necks. You want a V-neck. Well, you can get it in a V-neck and order it in a V-neck. Mm-hmm. And that's the future. Right. And even being able to, like, not only do it, not even order it, but, like, to do it in 
in-house. In-house. And it and they retrofit the old machines, which so it's not wasteful. They're, you know, they're not chucking old machines to put in new machines. They've just come up with this program to adapt the old machines to this new way. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And it just like sparks this thought in my mind of like, that's a whole other industry that would need to be able to supply the fibers that whatever you have in your home is using to create your clothes. So, the goal of all of this is zero waste. Right. Robots are more accurate. There is a lot less of, of course, there's a lot less of human error because the robots are doing it. And if they do mangle something, I, I can't remember the figures. I have them in the book, but it's, you know, less than 1% are, distru- are messed up. Mm-hmm. And then you have the humans come and fix the machine and take that error out. Zero waste that you can make to order, that you can print to order. All these things, this is how the industry, and not just the fashion industry, all of industry needs to adapt if we're going to survive on our finite planet. We can't have infinite growth on a finite no. space. No. We, we only have so many resources. And Mars, I mean, I saw it add Astra. Do we really want to go live on the moon? <laughs> I don't think so, even if it is with Brad Pitt. <laughs> Well, I have been now addicted to The Watchmen. Have you started watching this? Not yet. <laughs> it's really fabulous, but also there is there is the evil villain that lives on Mars. There are obviously a lot of novel strategies being implemented by tech, but also retailers. Yes. Right? Um, in terms of sustainability, and you talk about Rent the Runway um, at length in your book. And The Real Real. Who is one of the, The Real Real is one of the sponsors of our show. But my question to you is like, how are consumers interfacing with these kind of new business models? I think they're, I, I think that they're very interesting. I mean, a lot of these people are really pushing like the idea of retail outside of the box. Yes, well, there's companies like Moda Operandi where you order six months ahead something that you really like because you saw it on Instagram and then it's made to order. When I worked at the Washington Post forever long ago, and I worked for the wonderful fashion editor, Nina Hyde, I had a shopping column. I'm the curator in charge of her papers, by the way. I'm the one who got those papers to New York. <laughs> I'm the one who clipped all those things and stuffed them in the files. You should come see me. We'll look at them together. I'm the one who put who filled those files. So when I was working for her, she gave me a shopping column called Try It. And in Try It, she'd say, look through the fashion shows and see if there's pictures and things that you want to write about and say, okay, and then get the store credit. So I'd have to get on the phone. I'd see like some really great Oscar de la Renta suit that I wanted to put in the column. And then I would call Nordstrom and say, I love this suit. Are you carrying it? Well, no, it wasn't commercialized. Or I would call Oscar de la Renta and say, who in the Washington area is carrying this suit? And they say, no one. It wasn't commercialized. Commercialized meaning that, yes, we sent out all these things on the runway, but buyers only ordered the fifth look, the 17th look, and the 23rd look, and the rest of them yeah. into, the, into the bin they went because they weren't thinking back then about archives. And so it was really hard to sort of chase down. Like, you'd see these great things, and then they were never available. Well, Moda bypasses that. It just, like, obliterates it by saying, you look at the pictures on style.com or vogue.com or one of the other websites, and you put the order in. You say, I liked that one. And Moda says, you like that one? Well, we'll order it for you. And so it bypasses that whole idea of having the retailers, the buyer, 
ordering 18 months in advance or 12 months in advance and then the clothes sitting on the rack not selling and then winding up in the outlet or in the landfill or getting destroyed or burned. So it all comes down to all of these innovations are trying to bring us to a system of zero waste. And that's what we need to get to. Mm-hmm. So Moda's idea of you order ordering ahead of time and then we'll fulfill that order when, when this all goes into production is about zero waste. Some of the other retailers will say, you know, come in pop-ups. Pop-ups are about zero waste because they're stocking a very little amount and then when it's sold, it's sold. There are all these different ways that we're consuming. You know, Natalie Channon is direct-to-consumer, made-to-order, zero waste. These are all new ways of approaching the fashion industry and everything that I think will take hold and will be adapted on a grand scale. Yeah. And we can because of places like the Adidas Speed Factory where they can make shoes so quickly. So you go to the store and you're like, okay, I tried on the model. I love these shoes. Can I get them this week? And they'll make them to your order. They'll And they'll even scan your foot and make it to fit your foot. It's like couture on a mass scale. And that's what the digital revolution is giving us. We're actually going back to the old model, to the old model pre-industrial revolution and melding it with technology. With technology. I call it the third way. Yeah. No, it's so fascinating. And it's it's like we're not entirely there yet. Nope. But, but we're getting you there can really fast. See it. And it's so going to clearly. put the folks that aren't uh, aren't adjusting to this model out of business because they will be so behind because they're going to be drowning in leftovers. And that economies of scale idea is finally going to die. Mm-hmm. And 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 we actually have, we have merchandise that we produce for our show, but none of it is produced until it is ordered. Exactly. And like our, we have really cute tote bags, and they are partially upcycled plastic. You know, it's like you can actually do and, and interact with these other businesses that are already thinking in this way. Nordstrom's already tr- trying it out with what they call Nordstrom Local, where you walk in and you try on all the clothes, but you can't buy anything in the shop. Right. And you walk out with nothing. This is a whole thing it's a showroom. in Japan, too. Showrooms, but for consumers directly, not for buyers. Right. Yeah. So you can try them on. You can look at the stuff. You can touch it. You can touch it. But then you have to you either order it in store or go home and order it from your computer. It's your it's like it's like Hattie Carnegie. You know, have you ever watched that wonderful movie from the 1930s, The Women, George yep. Cooper's The Women? Of course, the fashion show part. The fashion show part. And then they go in the dressing rooms and they try on everything. Then those dresses are made up for them. Mm-hmm. For couture, right? Yeah. But in a department store. Yeah. It wasn't in a Paris couture house. It was in, you know, Hattie Carnegie's. And that's what we're going back to. And yeah. it's And it's far more chic because it's made for you. Right. And it's far more economical for the brands. Yeah. It really is. That economies of scale thing, like I said, it's fuzzy math. It doesn't... Re- somebody pays along the way. Right. Um, one of the things that's always interesting to me when I do just like general history of fashion orientations like based out of our collection at FIT is the, the massive amount of holdings that we have that are related to licensing that are exactly what you're talking about. Like, so we have all of the sketches from the Bergdorf Goodman Custom Salon. And just seeing, like, that you could go to Bergdorf's and get your Balenciaga. You could go to Bergdorf's and get your Dior made to measure for you. And it was all right there. It And, and you're like, 
that collection ends in 1969, but they had this all figured out. They had it all figured out. And then we chucked it. Yeah. Just like organic cotton, which we've been growing since the dawn of time. And in the last 30 or 40 years, it's been manhandled by places like companies like Monsanto. And we've created this Franken cotton. But in fact, we need to go back to the organic cotton because it's, it's a really good crop. It's one of those crops that, likes, that also thrives on poor soil. We created this, this Franken crop that cotton that needs more water than is sustainable and requires product, you know, pesticides and herbicides and defoliants mm-hmm. so they can pick it. And it's a disaster for the environment. When organic cotton, it's good for us. We need to go back to those old ways, but then we can use technology to do it efficiently. Mm-hmm. Just smart. Just be smart. Efficiency. Yeah. So the last question I want to ask you, because we're running out of time. We're always running out of time. (laughs) The subtitle of your book um, includes the phrase, the future of clothes. The future of clothes. So thinking about this is something that you have been doing very intensely for quite some time. And I'm just curious about your thoughts on fashion's future. I mean, that's a huge question. That's a huge well, question, but... <laughs> well, here we go. If I had my crystal ball <laughs> and I could tell you, then I would invest in those ideas and then I wouldn't have to write any more books. <laughs> because writing books is hard. Writing books people, is hard. People think that you just like pump them out and everyone's like, what's your next book going to be? I'm like, I'm not writing another book anytime soon. Books are hard, it but t- books are great. Yeah. You know, I have one daughter and three books. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be more children or more books. Um, the future of fashion, I think, is that we're going to go two different directions. And I, actually, I wrote this in Deluxe, and that did happen. And now I think it's going to curve around a bit. When I wrote in Deluxe, my first book, is that we were going to have two different kinds of luxury. We were either going to have the gigantic, the big groups which were then doing sort of one and two billion dollars a year in sales, grow to be gigantic. Which groups, has happened. Which now. has happened. You know, that Louis Vuitton yeah. and Gucci or Chanel are doing $10 billion a year in sales. Mm-hmm. Just enormous. They're going to get enormous. And meanwhile, we were going to have these luxury refugees who broke away from that, who said, I don't want to be part of that gigantic machine. They still want to do the artisanal hand production and the quality. And do small and with loving care and authenticity and craftsmanship and and keep it small and make it personal. And that's what happened. And I could see that that was coming just from by talking to people because that's what reporters do. We just talk to people and then we synthesize what they tell us. And what I think now is that everyone's going to have to adopt a sustainable model somehow. Everyone thought that Stella McCartney, who we didn't even touch about in this, but I have a whole chapter. Actually, yes. the whole last third of the book is about Stella. The 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 school of Stella. Yeah, and I'm a huge Stella fan. The school I, of Stella I, and how if she's I wear not, a lot of Stella. If she's not changing it herself, she's godmothering folks who are. And when she started saying, you know, no leather, no fur, because she is the daughter of some pretty famous hippies. And this is how she was raised as a vegetarian. You know, think of the planet, think of nature, care about, you know, all creatures. Everyone in the fashion industry thought she was out of her mind. But in fact, she was ahead of the curve. She was the future of fashion. And now everyone's realizing she's actually got a point and we need to get on the boat with Stella. Yeah. And and like when she makes fur coats, they are clearly faux, but they are insane. 
insanely gorgeous. And they, she's come up with this new sustainable fur. Yeah. That is not plastic, that is not polyester, yep. that is not petroleum-based, and it is sustainable. So she's coming up with solutions, and then she adapts the solutions on a decent-sized scale, and she proves that it makes money. She reached profit in her company a year ahead of schedule. So she shows that you can make money at this. And it is a smart way to do business. So I think that we're going to follow the Stella model. We're going to all have to follow the Stella model. And those that don't are going to crash and burn. And they're going to crash and burn so fast, it will just knock your socks off. Like Forever 21, just like, boom. And Barney's just went, boom. They're going to crash and burn if they don't get with Stella program. Dana, thank you. Thank you. You're like one of my all-time favorite writers. So it's, this has literally been so amazing to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you for taking time out of your time when you were in New York, because you actually live in Paris. I live in Paris. <laughs> to come into the studio and talk to us today on Dressed. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> yes, Dana, thank you so much. Okay, April, when you said that everyone who wears clothes needs to read this book, you were not joking. It's jam-packed with some rather, I mean, honestly, terrifying facts about the fashion industry. We just, we cannot ignore these any longer. There's all these facts about the industry itself, but us as consumers as well. Mm-hmm. But all is not lost. There are, again, some really wonderful tales of fashion brands that are working responsibly and we touched on just a handful of those in the interview, but I think our listeners will be delighted to read about many others that are covered in the book as well. Truth. <laughs> and with that, well, I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of fast fashion that might just be lurking in your closet next time you get dressed. And remember, we love hearing from you. So please write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episodes. And as always, a special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who helps make the show possible each and every week. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.